Good morning, Woodland Hills. It's, it's so often there's light, huh? Hello. Good to see all of you, and good to know all of you are watching, uh, who are watching. I'm Greg Boyd, teaching pastor here. And um, if I heard right, Shauna just volunteered me to be signing books all Friday night. Thanks a lot, Shauna. You're supposed to ask before you do, volunteer me to do stuff like that. Anyways, I'd be happy to do that, and Paul will too. And so uh, come be a part of that. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, let me just say a word about SEM. We uh, started this this last year, and uh, I, I, I have just been so impressed with the quality of students that we've got and the conversations that we've had. Um, I've, I've been impressed with the level of vulnerability uh, that, that folks have had. I didn't know how, how intimate can you get over Zoom, and, um, and I, I was just impressed by how, how far we got being over Zoom. Uh, it's been a joy to teach. And so if... Um, yeah, I, I, I would ask that some of you at least should be taking seriously the possibility of doing this. Um, it's a, a great way to carve a little time in your life to really get your theology down, your life down. We, we look at theology, we look at lifestyle, we look at mission, and, and cover the, it's a very holistic kind of program, uh, and it's very cheap, and as, as Shano said, it uh, is, of course, somewhere on 10, 15 hours a week, a week, we got readings and stuff we have to do, and twice a week, get together. So uh, I encourage you to come and be uh, uh, a, a part of that, at least to consider that. Okay, I, uh, we're running a special here today, folks. Um, it's it's uh, Woodland Hills, two sermons for one special. I, uh, yeah, I, so, and, and, and they're both free, so uh, of course you get what you pay for, so there's that. Um, no, but I, before I get into my message... Uh, there's a word that I've had on my heart all week long, and I've just found that it, it, uh, it's just been burning in me, and, and it, it's, it's helped me a lot to, to really focus my, my life, and I felt like I'm supposed to share it here. Um, the word in a nutshell is just this. Um, if you need a passage to hook this on, 1 Corinthians 13, 8 says that love never ends. Love never ends. And that's the only thing about which that can be said to be true. In fact, as Paul's talking about love never ends in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, he contrasts it with a bunch of other stuff that does come to an end. Stuff that's good, but uh, that is is here for a temporary reason, but then it will finally uh, fade away. Like, for example, he says prophecies will uh, will, will come to an end, knowledge will come to an end, uh, even faith and hope will come to an end, but love alone, love alone is eternal. And I've just been reflecting on that. what I know is that when God decides to wrap up this epic that we're in right now, this period of history that we're in now, and when he brings his kingdom in fullness, the fullness of his kingdom, when that happens, nothing that is inconsistent with the love of God will remain. Uh, when God's kingdom is fully established, the whole creation will be the dome over which he is king, and that means that his love will reign throughout. And we're, we're told this in Scripture. Everything will brought, be brought together and harmonized uh, uh, under the headship of Christ. Um, there'll be nothing in the kingdom that is inconsistent with the character of God. In the book of Revelation, one way they, they, they depict this, and it's all symbolic, but uh, it's that nothing, nothing unclean can enter the New Jerusalem. Revelation 21. Nothing unclean can enter into the gates of the New Jerusalem. Um, Everything that's going to be when the kingdom comes in fullness will be reflective in its own unique way, will be reflective of God's love. Which means that everything about us that is inconsistent with God's character, with God's will, with God's love, 
has got to be purged before we enter into the kingdom. Follow this? You can't take that with you. Uh, this is what I think Paul's getting at in 1 Corinthians 3. It's one of the ways that uh, he expresses this concept of the final judgment. I think the final judgment's the time when everything about us that's not consistent with Christ gets purged away. Uh, Paul talks about it like we come into the presence of God's love, and that love is like a fire. And the fire purifies all that can be purified about us. Everything that has got potential to be rendered consistent with the, 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 the character of God, that gets purified. The way that gold and silver and precious stones get purified in fire. But everything about us that's not consistent with the, the, the character of God, the love of God, gets burned away. Like wood and hay, dross gets burned up in the fire. And insofar as, as we get purified, well, that's our reward, Paul says. But insofar as we have to be purged, well, that is our loss. The one thing that's constant is, 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 the one thing that's eternal is the love. That's always the criteria. And love is defined by the cross. To what degree is our character formed in a cross-like, servant, other-oriented, self-sacrificial direction? That's the question. It sounds weird to put it like this, but, but, but you might say that love is what eternalizes us. Because that's the only eternal part of us. Everything that's other than that love, we've got to leave behind. It gets burned away. I, 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 I can think of it kind of like, you know, when you go out on a flight or if you go to a concert or a lot of events, you have to go through this metal detector. Right, so you're at the airport and you've got to put your bag, your bag's got to go through the, the, the scanning and, and you've got to go through the scanning. And if you have anything on you that's not supposed to be on a plane, well, you've got to leave that at the gate. Got that metal thing, got that gun carrying with you, and you got to leave that at the gate. <laughs> Sorry, I can't take that with you. Uh, and, and it's kind of like how I think of the final judgment. It's like, this is where God scans us, as it were. And the question is, is to what degree do you have stuff that can enter in the kingdom? To what degree are you composed of love, and to what degree are you not? That, 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 that uh, self-centeredness, sorry, you got to leave that at the gate. You can't take that into the kingdom. That pride of yours and that false humility, sorry, you can't take that with you. Um, got to check that at the gate. All of our judgments of other people, our selfish ambition, our claiming for wealth, or clamoring for, for convenience, or trying to get recognition, fame, all of our accomplishments, all of that you got to leave at the gate insofar as it's not birthed out of love and carried out for the purpose of love. Every, every thought, every word, every deed that we have that's not consistent with the love of God, you got to check that at the gate, the end of the gate. Every idol we've ever clung to is a false way of getting life. You've got to check that at the gate. You've got to leave that behind. You're not going to take that with you. Every aspect of our character that we've formed with every decision that we make throughout our life, insofar as it's not consistent with a cruciform, cross-shaped, other-oriented love of God, it's got to be checked at the gate. Only what is loving about us gets through that. And insofar as what's loving about us gets through that, that is our reward. But insofar as we got to check parts of ourselves at the gate, well, that is, that, that is our loss. So the question is, is how much of us will be checked at the gate? This uh, idea of the final judgment, I, I don't know if I've ever had one sermon just on the final judgment, but uh, it, it's something that's been percolating in me for some reason. I, I, I've got... Uh, 
I'm just getting insights into this, uh, to the point where we uh, decided that in a couple of weeks, starting in two weeks from now, we're going to continue our cross-examination series. But whereas up to this point, we've been looking, talking about how we are supposed to look at others through the lens of the cross, right? Uh, that's how, how we're supposed to see everybody. Um, so also, God looks at us through the lens of the cross, and that's what we want to be talking about. The final judgment, the cross is always going to be the criteria. And we'll get into all sorts of interesting things about the way that God brings about judgment and, and, and uh, end time stuff and all sorts of whatever. But uh, yeah, so we're going to go from having had no sermons on the final judgments to having however many sermons we're going to have. Who knows? If I get fired for something, all bets are off. Uh, it could go on for a while, and I've got fire about this. So uh, be looking forward to that. Well, one, one last word on this first sermon of mine, this prelude. Um, what all this means, folks, is that if, if, if only love is eternal, then the all-important question that we should be living in 24-7 is, how can I become the most loving version of myself that I can possibly be? What question could be more important than that? Because in the end, and that may come sooner than you think, in the end, that's the only question that's going to matter. It's the only thing we take with us is that love. Um, how can I love my wife or my husband better? Uh, how, how can I and live in this question? Make it the goal of every day. How can I love my friends better? How can I love my children or my grandchildren better, more Christ-like? How can I love my neighbor, my coworker, maybe even that ordinary boss? How can I love them better? How can I love because we're called to love everybody, that politician who drives me crazy. How can I love him better uh, or her better, as the case may be? And then we have to ask the question, how can I love myself better? Because that's also one of the things we're called to do, to honor the inherent worth that you have just as you honor the inherent worth of everybody else. And how can I love God better? And how can I love and respect and honor the, the, the value of God's creation better? And the value of the animal kingdom better, because that's, that's our first mandate. That's what we're called to, to live in that question. And so as your senior pastor, one of the pastoral team here, I, and I, I love you, and I want to see you have the best future that you can possibly be. And I'm aware that I and others on our team have to give an account of how mature, how we help people mature in Christ. So in light of that, I implore all of us to spend each day uh, living in that question, making that the goal of every day. And then in doing that, you're investing in your eternal future because that's the only thing that you take with you. And I hate the fact that Patrick Swayze made that into such a cheesy statement. You know, Maggie, the love... You guys know that show, Ghost? Uh, movie The Ghost with Whoopi Goldberg. Who here knows uh, Ghost? It was, was it called Ghost? Yeah. Whoopi Goldberg, yeah. Uh, and what was this theme song? Um, I love that theme song. Can't think of it now. It's, it, it's the Righteous Brothers, but it's not, you never close your eyes anymore. Uh, what was this song? Anyways, anyways, he looks back to Maggie, and Maggie's crying, and it's a sappy kind of thing, even though I got a little choked up. But he goes, you know, the love, you take it with you. And that's, it's, it's true. That's right. You do. That's the only thing you take with you. But he had to make it into this big sappy thing. So try not to think about Patrick Swayze every time I say, uh, the love you take it with you. Of course, probably no one would be thinking about that if I hadn't brought it up. All right. 
Okay, let's get into the teaching. I want to take another look at Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. Yes, this is about the 12th time we've looked at this, but I told you I wasn't going to be afraid of repetition, and I meant it. Um, I have one more point I want to bring out of this. Uh, probably that's not true either, but um, gosh, do I lie a lot. I really try, though. Uh, Matthew chapter 7, 1 through 5, let's read this again. Jesus says, do not judge so that you may not be judged. If you don't want to be judged, don't want to suffer loss, then just don't judge others. For the judgment you give will be the judgment you get. And the measure you give will be the measure you get. I'm going to talk about that whole thing and we get into talking about the final judgment. It will become important. And then Jesus says, why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye but you don't even notice the log coming out of your own eye? Or how can you say to your neighbor, let me take the speck out of your eye while the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. Lord, open our hearts and minds to receive this word and let it change us. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've talked about how Jesus here is giving us an attitude uh, that we're supposed to always have. Whereas in judgment, we look down on people. Got to look down on people. You have an assumption of superiority. Jesus says, do the opposite of that. Rather than minimizing your own faults and maximizing the faults of others, maximize your own faults and minimize the faults of others. Uh, You may be noticing a speck in your neighbor's eye, but remember that you've got a log by comparison. Whatever you think you see in uh, a neighbor's eye, whatever you think you see in their life, whatever fault, we're to assume that ours are... Millions of times bigger than that. However many specs there are in a log, well, that's how many times worse our sin is than another, in another's. And now Jesus isn't saying that by social standards, we are the worst of sinners. In fact, you can't have everybody being the worst of sinners. You can only have one. But he's giving us this attitude that we're to have, this posture of humility. To, 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 and he's doing it to free us from our, our, our addiction to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is the tree of judgment. We're addicted to it. We compulsively gossip about people in our minds. Jesus is trying to free us from that. So humbly refrain from judging. Leave all judgments to God. And instead, we're to agree with God that every person we see and every person we encounter, every person we even think about, is a person who's got unsurpassable worth as evidenced by the fact that Jesus Christ gave his life for them. And our most fundamental job, Discipleship 101, is to agree with God about that. If he's Lord, he gets to tell us what to think, and this is what he tells us to think. Look past whatever faults you see, whatever specs you see, and, 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 and uh, agree with God that this person has unsurpassable worth. When you do that with, with, with any kind of consistency, and I hope some of you have been practicing, I know some of you have been practicing this. This is our whole gap thing. Get your life from God, agree with God about every person you see uh, has unsurpassable worth, and then pray for your enemies. And if you've practiced this with any kind of intentionality and have been consistent with it, but you find that it, it reframes everything. It just re, it, you see the world differently when you're walking around just blessing people and agreeing with God. And, and, and there's something about it that is so freeing. Uh, two people have, have uh, actually three people have, have, have shared with me that there's, uh, as they were doing this, they, they found that they, they just feel lighter. A person says that, that you know, the person said that they have always struggled with kind of chronic fatigue, but someone, when they're running around blessing people, they feel like they've got more energy. It puts a skip in their step. Uh, one person said that it's just like a, a, a tremendous weight was lifted off their shoulders. And, and there's just a sense of freedom. Um, you get to love people. 
You don't have to be judge of the universe. Part of that is because when you're loving and blessing people, going throughout the day and, and, and just loving on people, you're in line with God's will. And whenever we're in line with God's will, we're in line with God's character. And whenever we're in line with God's character, there's going to be a, a, a dimension of shalom, of peace that we're going to experience that we otherwise couldn't experience. Walking in congruity with God just brings congruity in your spirit. Amen? But on top of that, here's the thing is that when people walk around with their judgment mechanisms going on, eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which unless you're being disciplined to do otherwise, you're probably doing without even noticing. We get so used to it. It's a background noise. But we have, co we have opinions about everything. Yeah, no, yeah, boo, we're just constantly evaluating, sizing up, sizing down. And, and, and with all of those opinions in our head, there's, there's a, a, a bit of an emotional component. Yay! Bad. I like. I don't like. There's some emotion wrapped up with it. We walk around in our life with all this stuff in our head, packed with opinions, tons of opinions, and emotions that go along with that. But when you come to the understanding that you're only allowed one opinion of people, unless they've invited you to have more than that, because they want you to help them. I'll talk about that in a moment. But otherwise, we're only allowed one opinion, and that is that this person with worth Jesus is dying for, and therefore they have unsurpassable worth. And when you commit to thinking that thought and nothing else, it laser focuses your brain and you let go of all that clutter. And it feels so good. And you don't even realize what a weight you've been carrying until you let go of it. It's like, oh. Just give yourself permission to love every person you see. But to do that, you got to set aside all the other things that you think you see and, and, and set aside the specs and just agree with God about their, their, their love. It really, is, it really is hard to play God. And that's what we're doing whenever we're, we're, we're judging. We're acting like we're king of the universe. we got to let that go. Let go. Let, you know, when I was first a Christian, we had this saying all the time, let go and let God. I said for everything, and I never quite, you know, half the time I don't think it even applies because God usually wants to work with us, not for us. He, he's, he's the partnership. Uh, but let go and let God. But this is one area where it really applies. Let go and let God. Let go of all judgment and leave it all to God. Amen? Let go of it. And you'll find how freeing and liberating it is. But there's another blessing. The blessing is this. That every time we choose to love in a particular moment, to agree with God about the unsurpassable worth of somebody and to bless them. Every time we love, whether it's a big thing or a small thing, it, it, it moves our character forward in a, a particular direction. Every decision we make does that. But the decision of love moves us in the direction of forming a loving character. And in that light, you can say that every loving choice we make is an investment in our future, an investment in our eternity, because as I've said, love's the only thing that we take with us. When we are loving others, we're investing in our future. We're blessing them now, but in God's economy, economy it always works out like this. When, when we put the interests of others ahead of our own, it's in our self-interest. And so, yeah, you, you bless them. You do take a little sacrifice here. Take a moment just to bless them. That's, that's self-sacrificial. Uh, you're not being self-absorbed. You're thinking about them and you're blessing them. But you're also investing in your future. You're helping them, but you're also helping yourself. And so I encourage you, as, 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 as your pastor who wants you to have the best future possible, and I have to give an account of this, spend every day investing in your eternal future. Uh, you're investing in something that, that will last forever. And this is, that's the only thing that does last forever. Live investing in your future. This is just what Paul's getting at in Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2, when he says, Be imitators of God. Live in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. We're to live in this. 
We're not to visit love, we're to live in it. We're not to do it once in a while, turn it on, turn it off. No, we're supposed to live in this. Integrate love into our life in every possible way that we can. And, um, and in doing that, you're, you're investing in your future. It's, uh, so ask yourself the question, are you breathing? Are you alive? Well, it's the right time to love. Do you have any kind of brain activity at all? It's the right time to love. What I love about this is you never really have to ask the question, should I be loving right now? The answer is yes. And remember, love is a verb. To love someone is a verb. And so there's a verb that we need to be living in, a verb that we need to be doing all day long that other people aren't doing. And what is that verb? It is agreeing with God that this person has unsurpassable worth and, and, and reflecting that by how you think about them and how you speak about them, how you speak to them and how you treat them. Live in love as Christ has loved us and given his life for us. So I implore us to be investing in our eternal futures, the one thing that's eternal, all day long, every day. And that's forming your character, a character that will go through the scanner and not have to be checked in at the gates. All right, so all that's by way of review. Now let's look at some new stuff. I want to look at verses 4 and 5, which we haven't looked at yet, where Jesus says, after saying don't judge, he goes, or how can you ask uh, your neighbor, let, let me take the speck out of your eye if you've got a two-by-four in your own eye? I noticed something in the, this passage that I hadn't noticed before, and this is the value of going over something 12 times. Uh, you, you, you notice things. I, I, Verses 1 through 3 is about, are about judging others. Uh, Jesus says, why do you see, you notice the speck, but you don't notice your, your, your own log? So it's about what you see. It's about judging, not judging others. But then in verse 4, he changes a little bit, and he says, he, he, he asks a different question. How can you help your neighbor if you've got a log in your eye? So how can you judge your neighbor? And then how, how can you expect to help your neighbor get a speck out when uh, you've got a log in your own eye? The point he's making here is that we can't hope to really help others with specks in their life, faults in life, problems in their life, if we approach them with any kind of sense of superiority. What Jesus is saying here is that the humble stance that we assume so that we don't judge others is also the humility that we have to assume when we want to help others. You can't come at them as... A superior, looking down on them, oh, I'll help you. No, you, 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 we're to assume that we're the worst of sinners, even as we're going to help them. Be aware of the log in our own eye, even as we're saying we'd like to help you with the speck that's in your eye. When people fail to do this, or when organizations fail to do this, when they, when they, when they approach helping others with any kind of sense of superiority, and their intentions may be, may be really, per, really nice and well and good, but if they're not aware of their own logs, they can do, actually end up doing more harm than good. You get a savior complex. All oh, these people need me. I will save you. And you don't notice. You don't know what you don't know. You don't notice the log in your own eye. Sometimes a, 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 a great documentary on this is it's called Poverty, Inc. Have some of you seen this? Poverty, Inc.? Uh, and a book on this topic is called When Helping Hurts. Both of them are outstanding. They give examples of how folks, well-intentioned folks, um, when disaster happens and, and, and they want to help, they don't notice the, the, the log of their own superiority, the assumption that we have the answers, uh, and, and, and our job is just to help you. You have nothing to offer us. Uh, they don't they don't give the, the people who are in the disaster the dignity of asking them, hey, what do you need? What do you need? How can we partner with you uh, to, to make this work? Instead, we just assume we know. 
And we send over all of our stuff, and often it does more harm than good because it erodes the infrastructure of the place there. It, it ends up unemploying people, and all sorts of other things happen. I encourage you to check that out. How can we help if we're not aware of the log in our own eye and, and, and are always seeking to take that out? To say, how might I not be seeing the situation uh, rightly here? To humble ourselves and, and ask questions rather than assume that we know when helping hurts. But notice this. Jesus assumes here that there is a place for asking to take a speck out of someone's eye. And that's interesting. There's a place for you to offer to help somebody because maybe you notice something that they don't notice and it's harming them and you care about them. There is a place for that. It's just that when we do that, we have to do it with this, this humility that Jesus tells us. Always aware that we can have logs in our own eye, even as we're trying to help somebody. But in fact, everybody in the New Testament understood that we, we all need relationships with other people that are such that they have the permission to ask us if we'd like them to take a speck out of our eye. In the New Testament, they understood that we all got blind spots and we need each other to help one another be all that we can be in the kingdom. And so we read this in the New Testament, things like speak the truth to one another in love, confess your sins to one another, admonish one another, encourage one another, support one another, reprove one another. There's 57 one another's in the New Testament. Do this, that, and the other thing to one another. Now when the New Testament authors are writing this, they're not thinking about a church, a mega church where most people don't know most people. Uh, in the, for the first three centuries, Christians met in, in households, and there were tight-knit groups of maybe 10, 20 people, 30 at the most. And, and these folks were living in a hostile environment, and, and, and we know that in some uh, uh, areas, they would meet every day, not just once a week, but every day. They knew one another, they lived life together, and they, they understood that what it is to belong to the body of Christ is that we're here to help one another. All those one another's are the, the primary context in which those one another's apply are in very intimate relationships where people have invited each other to speak into their lives. Early Christians understood that part of the covenant we enter into is the covenant to help one another uh, in, in appropriate ways to be all we can be for, for the kingdom of God. And see, in those contexts where you know one another, if someone comes to you and says, hey, I, I'm concerned about this, uh, there's this I'm worried about the speck that I see that maybe you don't see. When someone comes and says that, we know them. And we know that they care about us. And so we know that they're not judging us. They're not trying to feel self-righteous about this. No, they genuinely want to help. And, and that's why we invite them to speak into our lives. Uh, we all need relationships like that. All of us. If we take serious this, the idea that the goal of every day has got to be for, to become the most loving version of ourselves as we can possibly be. We can't hope to do that alone. Why should we want to do that alone? If that's the goal, then I, I need all the help I can get. People who know you well enough to know when something's off. People who know you well enough to have the courage to say, I'm concerned about this and point something else. I know I've got blind spots and I know you've got blind spots. If the goal is to become as loving as possible, how could we not want other people to be around, to watch our back, to be looking out for those kind of blind spots? Uh, we all need that. The thing is, is that this is a hard sell in Western culture. This is a hard sell. We are, we are so individualistic. Uh, it's just part of our worldview. And so the general prevailing assumption is my business is my business, and you got no business prying into my business. My business is my business, and no one's got a right to 
criticize me, speak into that, that's judging me. Don't judge me. Any kind of critical word, well, it's, it's just shunned. So we had uh, a number of years ago, and by the way, when I share stories about pe people at Willow Hills Church, I will modify the story enough such that if you think you know who I'm talking about, I promise you, you don't. Okay? So, so there was this guy. It could have been a gal, but I'll just go with a guy. And um, they were part of a, 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 like a small group. There was four couples together, and they, they had for about a year been kind of getting together once a week and sharing their life and uh, doing some Bible studies, talking about sermons and all the rest, but growing in Christ together. It was wonderful. But then it came out that this guy was having an affair with this other woman. And uh, the wife was willing to, if you would repent, take him back and work on this. But he was going to, he finally found his true love. Yeah, that, that's, I never heard that before. Oh, finally found a person who really, really, really gets me. Oh, I, I, I thought I was in love before, but I never really loved my husband. I, I, I now realize, or I never loved my wife. I now realize, uh, no, no, now I found true love. And she laughs at my jokes and she thinks, finally I feel appreciated. And so he's going to bolt and, 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 and go with this other gal. So the group comes together with the wife and, 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 and does an intervention of sorts and just says, dude, what are you doing? I mean, how does this, how does this square with your, 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 your kingdom commitment, with your being a follower of Jesus, with, you know, your, your commitment you made for better or for worse before God? And these, what are you doing here? And this person responded by basically saying, who are you to judge me? You can't judge me. And to much, to much to my chagrin, I was told that the person quoted me in defense. Pastor Boyd says you're not supposed to judge, and here you are judging me. You don't know. You just don't know how miserable I was. You don't know how much I love this other person. You don't know. Do not ever quote me like that. <laughs> Please. Oh, that's a bunch of poppycock, boulder, crapola. I mean, that is just... See, who are you? Who are you? To, well, he, he, here's, here's who they are, friend. Uh, the, the, this, these are your brothers and sisters in Christ. This, this is your family. These are your friends. They're trying to spare you from making a terrible decision and inflicting a whole lot of pain, more pain than you've already inflicted on, on, on your wife and on your kids and on, on us and on God. The pain you're bringing on God. And they're trying to bring an end to this. They're trying to help you. That's who they are, and what they're doing is absolutely appropriate and good, and this isn't judgment at all. They're not feeling self-righteous. Oh, we never cheated. No one's doing that. They're just imploring you to stop going down this dunderhead, stupid road that you're going, chasing after this elusive happy ever after. And the person wouldn't listen to them and left, and guess what? They did not live their happy ever after, uh, and no one's surprised about that. The truth is, folks, we all need friends like that, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, who, are, who, who care about us, who are watching our back, who say, man, I'm really concerned about the direction you're going. Now they also do a bunch of other stuff. We're not just pleasing each other, none of that. No, we're just sharing life together, but it comes up naturally that if I see something that's concerning, I might say something, well, what, what about this? We all need folks like that. But see, there's a part of us that really resists that. I want my privacy. No one gets to know or speak into what I'm doing. And it goes deeper than our culture. Um, here's the thing. Uh, we, we've talked about how when you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it's, it's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because uh, that phrase was used of ancient Near Eastern kings who were alone 
said that no good and evil. Because the king alone had the right to define good and evil for everybody. He's the king. He's the law. And so he makes decrees. Here's what the law of the land is. That's how it worked in the ancient Near East. So when we eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we have this inclination to act like and think that we're confident enough and we have the right to judge the world. We define what's good and evil. And we always do it in a self-serving way to our own advantage. But see, there's another aspect of being an ancient Near Eastern king that we haven't talked about. Uh, Paul Eddy, my good friend, who will be with me on the hot seat when, when, on the, when we have that get-together on Friday the 14th or whatever it is, um, he pointed out that another privilege of an ancient Near Eastern, Eastern king was not just that they were able to judge others, but they were above all judgment. They were the law, so no one got to hold them to account on anything. To speak to a king and give advice and critique, well, that would bring, you get executed for that. How dare you talk to the king that way? And see, the flip side of our eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that causes us to want to judge others, well, the flip side of that is that it makes us want to be very defensive. How dare you say that about me? Think that about me? Question me about that? Two sides, being an ancient Near Eastern king. And both of them reflect eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Folks, if we're going to live in love as Christ loved us, and this is the calling every day, the truth is we've got to get off our ancient Near Eastern high horse and surrender all judgment to God, leave all judgment to God, and commit to disagreeing with God about the worth of everybody. The flip side of that is we've got to get off our high horse, our ancient Eastern high horse. And by the way, this is the title of the sermon, Get Off Your High Horse. Uh, well, get on our ancient eastern high horse and, 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 and realize that uh, we give up this idea that my business is my business and it's none of your business to be in my business. Now, that's true of the general you know, strangers out there, but there's got to be some people in your life, one, two, three, maybe four, I don't know, but somebody who, who, who's, who's your business is their business because you've invited them in because you want to become all you can be in the kingdom of God. Uh, folks, this is how the, the bride of Christ... Uh, Bible says that the bride of Christ is to be making herself ready because our groom is going to return. We don't know what that's going to look like or when that's going to happen, but it could be sooner than later, but we're supposed to be getting ready for this. Uh, and the bride makes herself ready in part by helping one another. We help one another get ourselves ready. We all want to be the most lovely bride we can be, the most loving versions of ourselves that we can possibly be. We all want to have this greater reward in the kingdom as we can possibly have. So let's help one another do that. Make it into a team thing. So my question then is, is this, who, who do you have in your life that has permission to speak into your life? Who do you have in your life that knows you well enough to know when you're starting to go down a wrong road and they have enough care, concern for you to point that out and offer to help you get free from that? Um, and, and, and I imagine there are people, in fact, I know there are people where you, you're thinking to yourself, well, I tried that and it didn't work. Or maybe I tried that and it was disastrous. And the truth is, and I'm not going to sell you a bill of goods here, people are people, people are messy, and so everything pertaining to people is messy. And so, yes, yeah, sometimes spiritual friends, is what we call them when people have this, are helping one another grow spiritually, but sometimes... Sometimes it can be absolutely beautiful, but sometimes it, 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 it flops. And sometimes you can get hurt because sometimes you think you have really close friends and they promise to be your friends and you have a covenant and then one day they decide to up and leave you. And that burns like all get out. And there can be a party that says, I'm never going to do that again. We get self-protective. And it's understandable. We want to guard our hearts. No one wants to get hurt. 
It's understandable that maybe for a season you just got to say, okay, I got to just let myself mend. I got that. I got that. Been there, done that. But at some point, you've got to get back in the relational game, really. We're never meant to live life as an island. We're meant to live life interconnected. And, and so I encourage you to continue to pray about, is there something funky, something funky going on with my f- microphone here? One, two, one, two. Hi. Okay. Um, if you're in that season, ask God to bring about healing in your life and then courage in your life to begin to explore the possibility of entering into spiritual friendships. Uh, we don't have any one way that to do that. We, we try to create opportunities for people to meet one another. It's not the kind of thing you can just mandate or have a program for it. We offer a class on spiritual friendship every now and then, so keep your eye open for that. Uh, you might think about uh, getting in our, our gathering groups, our great way to meet people, and, and, and some have developed close friendships that way. Sam is a great way to get to know some people, get close to some folks. A lot of some spiritual friendships have developed in, in our, our, our Sam class. Um, we have the ref, Refuge, which uh, has support groups, and they also have classes that you can look into, take classes with others uh, as a way to do that. Uh, volunteering at the food shelf or volunteering to be greeters or in children's. You get to meet other people, and it's a good way. Keep, keep your antennas out. Be praying about it for God to lead you into a, a relationship that could develop into a spiritual friendship. And um, anything else, Ray? Other things? Oh, uh, we have we got uh, uh, vessels for 20-somethings if you're in the 20 age group. We've got a special group there called Vessels. Anything else, Mary? Life on Purpose is a class that is starting in the fall. And that'd be a, 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 another class you could take. And we always include mixing up, you know, having conversations in these classes. In part because it gives chance to, uh, people a chance to, to meet one another. Folks, the love is the only thing we take with us. This is the all-important thing. We've got to be willing to do all we can do to become the most loving version of ourselves as we can possibly be. And one of those things is to be open, getting off our high horse, thinking that we're above any kind of critique, and inviting people that we trust into our life to help us live out this kingdom walk. All right. If you are, uh, so, so we have uh, the Muse cast on, uh, on Tuesdays at 4 o'clock, uh, where uh, Shauna and Dan go deeper with a message than, than uh, we can go here on the weekend services. Um, we've got gathering groups that talk about this stuff. Great way to meet people, and so look into that. Uh, we have prayer. If you're here in the auditorium, we have prayer up front. Uh, if, you, if you have any matter that you could use prayer on, or if you're watching a podcast, we have prayer available online. And finally, if you're going to be here next week and you have kiddos with you, uh, please let us know ahead of time so we can have enough uh, folks there to minister to your kids. Of a Father, we thank you for making us your children. By your grace, we are saved. Thank you for the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in our life. And as we leave here as your people, Holy Spirit, will you be reminding us of what the point of every day is, whatever else we've got going on. Be reminding us to be living in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. Be reminding us of the need to be investing in our future. Be reminding us of the call to live in congruity with God. Be reminding us that we're meant to be set free, not carrying the weight of the world on judgments on our shoulder, but to be free just to love people as they are. We commit to doing this for you as we leave here in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, God bless you guys. Go out love on the world.